We're going to start a new series this morning, uh, and we're going to look at the book of Ruth 4. The plan is four weeks, but around BCC, you know how that goes. Maybe the rest of your life. You never know. Just brace yourself. So we're going to start uh, Ruth this morning, um, and uh, in the middle of your Bible, probably Psalms, right? If you're in First, Second Samuel, you're real close. Like, go left. Uh, it follows this book called Judges. If you're in Judges, go to the right. Uh, we're going to be there for a few weeks. So here's, here's the thing about Ruth. Uh, first of all... I love it so much. All right, so, um, but here's the deal. Here's the difficult part of this, though, uh, is that I mention Ruth all of the time. Like, I bring up Ruth a lot. Uh, so the difficult part will be for me to not just jump to the f- chapter four, to the ending, right? Because I just, I, I go there just all the time. I mention it in sermons. It's a, just a touchstone for me in a thing that I think is critical for us. Uh, and so I, just, I try not, not, not to jump just straight to you don't know what God's going to do with your obedience, right? Like, that's, that's Ruth 4. So I just try not to every week just say that, but, but just brace yourselves, it might happen. Uh, so Ruth is this um, story. It is a, it's a short story. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, it's great storytelling. Um, I find that super interesting, right? It's kind of set up in acts and scenes, Right, like it's so it's really well structured. It, it begins with a list of people's names, and it ends with a list of people's names. It's symmetrical in that way. Um, there's tension and release. There's all like it's an ancient story, like really ancient, maybe one of the oldest short stories we have in a foreign language and a culture foreign to us. But yet, the story still appeals. Right, it's still. It still has all the marks of a modern story, things we look for today in a story. And I, I just find that so fascinating that so many things have changed and so many things are different. But the power of story, like this has just been around since the beginning. It's almost like we were built for it, you know? Uh, to hear this story, that we fit in this grand narrative. And I think that's why so many stories appeal to us. So this is a story, it's a beautiful story that focuses on two women, primarily focuses on uh, uh, Ruth and Naomi. And um, it's a beautiful story about their lives. On one level, it's just a, a story of friendship. It's a, a story of romance. Um, but primarily, uh, this interesting thing happens. Uh, it, it hardly, well, God, it almost, it's almost like God's not in it. It's, it's, he's not mentioned in this book. Well, he's mentioned, people talk about him, but he, there's no miracles that or mentioned that he, he does. It doesn't say that God spoke to anybody. There, there's no, the narrator doesn't give us any indication uh, that God has said or done anything, but at the same time, somehow you see all the way through that God is acting. As a matter of fact, it's primarily a story about God. And it's told in such a way so that you see that, that God, we, we learn something from this story because it's about how God interacts with humans and our lives. Uh, and the relationship between God and man, and it's just humans, and it's so good. Uh, it's a book about God. It deals with um, unimportant people in unimportant places, um, and God just moving in those moments. Um, it shows that God is active in the affairs of people, and that he works his purpose out, and he blesses those that trust him. That's what the overview of this book is. This young woman, Ruth, attaches herself to her mother-in-law. We'll get to this in the story in a second. In this amazing way, her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law's God, and she receives God's blessing 
in that. Um, it shows that God works in the ordinary lives of his people and that he works through them to accomplish his purpose, his design. That's what Ruth does and one of the things that makes it so, so beautiful. So let's read the prologue of Act 1. Uh, Ruth 1. Here's the prologue. Uh, the first six verses. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, uh, Naomi. The names of his two sons are Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite women, wives, and the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She arose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the country, from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So this is, the, this is the background of the whole story, right? It starts off with this beautiful background. In the time of the judges. So this just sets the frame, the background of what's going on in the world and in Israel specifically. Uh, it's the time of the judges. So um, God decided that the way he's going to restore everything, right, is somehow going to be through the descendants of this man named Abraham. And so yeah, he gives, tells Abraham he's going to have this, this promised land. One day he's going to have these great descendants, all these descendants. And so um, he ends up having a son and then he has sons and they have sons. And they, but over time, uh, they actually, the people of Abraham actually end up out, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, end up outside of where God told them they would be, the promised land of Canaan. And they end up in Egypt and they become a great people there, Right? We're looking at this when we study Exodus. Um, and, uh, but they end up enslaved, and God uses this man named Moses to lead them out of uh, enslavement. Uh, uh, and, and he gives them a law at Sinai, and he gives them a land. He leads them into the land. Moses actually leads them right up to the edge of the land, and this guy named Joshua leads them in. So in the Bible, you're looking at the way our Bible is ordered. Uh, you're looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the, the first five books of the Bible. And you have Joshua as the leading into the land, the taking over of this great promised land. But the weird thing is, uh, when they get to the land, God's made them a nation, right? Like To be a nation, you need people, you need laws, and you need a land. And God's given them these things. And so they're this nation, but they're an unusual nation because they're not like other nations. They they don't have a king, right? Well, at least not a human king. Um, Instead of having a king, because they're they're supposed to be this alternative community. They're not supposed to be like Egypt, right? With this pharaoh and then all the way down to the slaves, right? They're not supposed to be like that. God is their king and he's given them rules and he rules over them. So they're not supposed to do that. Uh, And so instead what happens is uh, God just says, look, you go live in the land and you do the things that I say and it's going to be, like, I got it. I got this. You do what I say. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I got this. Don't worry about it. Uh, but them being people, once they get in the land, uh, yeah, they don't act right. Uh, they act poorly. Uh, they don't do the things they promised to do. They don't keep the covenant uh, that God made with them. And uh, so God, because he loves them, allows them to be overrun by foreign nations. He's over, over, uh, he, you know, because God needs to sometimes 
make things hard for us. If everything was just easy, we would, we'd forget how much we need him, right? So he sends these people to turn their hearts and their lives back to him. And so these nations come and they overrun them. And then when they kind of get conquered, uh, they'll cry out to God. And this is the book of, what the book of Judges is, is them getting overrun and then they cry out and God sends a judge. And the judges are men and women that God raises up, these heroes, to save this, the nation, right? To deliver them. They turn their hearts back. And, the, and as long as the judge is alive, the people act right. And then when the judge dies... They stop acting right. Like that's the cycle. If you read through the book of Judges, that just happens over and over and over and over again until you get to the most tragic of all, uh, Samson, right? And it just goes wonky. And so it, that's the cycle of the book of Judges. They cry out to God and God will restore them. But there's this uh, crazy refrain that gets repeated in the book of Judges. Four times, actually. Uh, it says this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but e- and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the refrain. It's repeated four times. In the time of the judges, there was no king. Everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes. That's the background. And this is a national level thing. It's a war. It's a, it's a, it's a book about judges. It's about war and it's about chaos. It's about national heroes and national sin. And then we have in the next book, Joshua Judges, Ruth. In the time of the judges, we have this story a quiet story of ordinary people just going about their life against the backdrop of all of this chaos. So here's the situation. Uh, in, the land of the, uh, in, the t- in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there's a famine, which is a big deal. Like I, None of us have ever experienced famine, uh, most likely. Uh, th- it's hard for us to imagine, I think. It's hard for me, at least, to imagine like the scale of tragedy that is, right? I've honestly never wondered where my next meal's coming from. Like, I've just lived that kind of blessed life. I've wondered in the middle of one meal what I was going to eat in my next meal. That's how bad it is for me that I've never worried about famine. I'm eating one thing, like, what am I going to have for dinner, you know? So I've never experienced this level of national tragedy. But a famine, like, people are going to die. Like, this is terrible. So there's a famine in the land, and so these people make a difficult decision to immigrate. There's a famine, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, which Bethlehem, by the way, ironically, means house of bread, right? Just famine, house of bread. So he's from Bethlehem in Judah, and because there are multiple Bethlehems. And so he goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. He his wife, and his two sons. They make the difficult decision to immigrate. It's always a difficult decision to immigrate, right? To leave your people and to go to a different place where they don't speak your language, and they, it's just different. So they go to Moab where the language is different, the people are different. Uh, they've had interactions in the past with Moab. It's not spoken highly of uh, uh, from a biblical perspective. And so they go to this land where they worship other gods. Chemosh is their, their primary god. We know this from archaeological records. Chemosh is the god that they worship, the primary god that they worship. Uh, and so they make the difficult decision to immigrate, hoping for a better life, right? In the face of famine. So he moved to Moab, uh, and, uh, and this is, tells us their names in chat, uh, verse 2. Uh, the name uh, of the man was Elimelech, which means, Hebrew names usually mean things. Um, our names don't mean anything, usually. Uh, uh, maybe yours does, uh, but mine doesn't, uh, that I know of. Uh, and so but their names always mean something. Elimelech means God is my king, or something like that, right? Uh, his wife, Naomi, beautiful name, right? It means beautiful or pleasant, sweet, something like that uh, is what her name means, uh, and then the two sons were uh, Malon and Chilion. Their names are a little bit more, a little bit more difficult. Uh, pretty common names. They, they occur other places uh, in the uh, record. But Malon's name means something like weak, sickly, 
which is, you know, unfortunate, I guess. Uh, and then Elimelech, his name actually, or Chilean might actually mean abomination, right? Or something, uh, just rough names, difficult names. Uh, I don't know why exactly, but those are the names of their kids. So um, they're Ephratites, Ephr- uh, probably people of some uh, renown. This is an old name for Bethlehem, uh, Ephratite was. And so they're from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, and then tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. But she has her two sons. And they take wives, Moabite wives, probably frowned upon at the very least, maybe even not supposed to happen to marry outside of Israel, but they're outside of Israel. They take Moabite wives. Uh, and uh, the name of one is Orpah and the name of the other is Ruth. They live there 10 years and then tragedy strikes again. Both Malon and Chilion die. And so the woman, Naomi, is left without her sons and without her husband. Um, tragedy strikes. I, we don't know why. It's actually, uh, people talk about this like a lot, a debate why did they die. Uh, some people think they died because they, should have not, they shouldn't have left Israel, right? They should have trusted God that he was going to provide and they shouldn't have left and gone into Moab. And some people think that the, the sons, God punished the sons for um, marrying outside of Israel uh, so, or did they did something that displeased God. There's a lot of speculation about that. And then some people come back and say, it doesn't say that. People leave. I mean, it doesn't say that in the text. Like, you're just speculating. Um, and so they don't really know. Here, here's what, if you care, what I think. I think our storyteller is brilliant and doesn't tell us on purpose. I think that it doesn't give us a reason uh, for a couple reasons. Um, one, I mean, life's like that. You don't know why tragedy strikes sometimes. Um, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes um, God does correct us, and sometimes because of sin, and sometimes it just because we live in a world marred by sin that's broken and messed up, sometimes bad things just happen. And I think the storyteller just intentionally doesn't hint at either one. Uh, and here's another reason why I think that is, is because it's not really a story about them, it's a story about Naomi and Ruth. And so, not really kind of getting into their story, let me tell you what Naomi and Ruth and Orpah did with the hand that they were dealt. And so that's what this goes on to talk about. Um, what matters is the position that Naomi's left in, right? That's what the focus of this prologue is. is she is left there, tragic, and she's left in a very vulnerable position. In the ancient world, there weren't a whole lot of options for a woman, much less a widow, to provide for herself. There just weren't a lot of ways to do that. Uh, so she didn't have a lot of hope. And uh, I imagine that God must have seemed silent to her. I've been through famine, I lost my husband, and now I've lost my kids, and now I have nothing. I have no hope. As a matter of fact, later in this chapter, she's going to say, uh, this act two, scene two, she's going to say uh, that I left full and came back empty. I've got nothing. She's in a vulnerable spot. She's lost everything, doesn't have a whole lot of hope because there's not a whole lot of ways for her to provide for herself uh, as a widow without someone to support her. Um, and so God must have seemed silent. Uh, and sometimes we don't hear God because of sin, right? Uh, sometimes in our lives, we don't hear God talking to us because we have sin in our lives. And one of the things uh, over, over time I have uh, noticed is how powerful sin is in deluding us 
We just we can just like huge blind spots about sin in our lives. It's it's so sometimes we go through trouble and we go through struggles in life, and it's because bad things happen, and it's because of sin in our life. Uh, that's just a reality. Um, some of some of us, uh, uh, some of you, uh, we uh, as a, I heard a, it's one of my favorite things ever. Comedian said one time, "There's this TV show growing up, um, and." Uh, called Incredible Hulk. I used to watch it growing up. And uh, it's a story about this guy named uh, David Banner. And David Banner would uh, go from town to town each week. He would travel from town to town. And every week, uh, something would happen. He would get beat up or get in a fight, or get in a scuffle, and he'd get beat up, and he would turn into an Incredible Hulk, right? This big, huge monster that would destroy things. Uh, and this com- the comedian pointed out, I thought it was great, and he goes, who gets beat up that much? Maybe the problem is you. And I just love that so much. I think that all the time. I'm like, this thing keeps happening over and over and over again. Well, how many times is it going to happen before you stop and ask, maybe the problem's me? Like, I think a lot of times there's sin in our lives, and we keep touching the stove, right? We keep touching it. Like, why is God doing this to me? And you keep touching the stove, right? Like, and I say that with sympathy, because I've done it. I've been there. Matter of fact, I wake up in the middle of the night, terrified sometimes I'm going to do it again, because it's going to happen. We just do that, because sin blinds us, and we don't understand that it's cause us. You know what I'm talking about? So, uh, do you ever have that friend who kept dating the same person over and over and over again, and you're like, dude, it's not going to be different this time. Like, what are you doing? She's like, no, this is, she's different. I'm like, no, she, I, I walked in the room, I thought it was the same person. Like, you keep dating her over and over again. Like, you should talk to somebody about this. It's the first time we ever talk, thought about counseling. It was like, when we were your friend was like, dude, you should talk to somebody. I don't know who, but like, you got a problem, right? We keep doing the same thing, making the same mistake over and over and over again. We see huge blind spots sometimes because of sin. Sometimes, though, it's not sin. Sometimes it's because we live in a busy world. Sometimes it's because we're not still. There's this psalm. I love it so much. I talk about it all the time. I can't help talking about it. There's this great psalm where David starts off and he says, consider the stars, the works of your hands. We don't do that. We don't stop and consider to be still and think about the works that God has done. Sometimes we don't hear God speak because we're just so busy because we live in a world designed to rob us of moments of stillness and quiet. In a few weeks, we're going to do a thing on uh, uh, technology, Christians and technology. And one of my primary things that I think, I think, things could change between, between now and then, one of the primary things, primary conclusions that I'm, going to, that I'm going to try to lead you to is that we have to be super intentional about finding space and time because everything in your life is trying to take it away from you. It's one of the roles of technology is, why, why do you, look, this, this thing taps me nonstop. Every time I just have a, like, it's like I, he's considering the stars. We should, know, we should annoy him, you know? Like, it's we just, technology, we have, we're going to have to be, because of the, what we're awash in, we're going to have to be super intentional about being still and being quiet so we can hear God. Sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes it's because there's no stillness and quiet. Sometimes it's just because God is silent. There's this verse, uh, this psalm, Psalm 22 starts out this way. Throw that out there, please. Psalm 22 says, uh, is it there? I might have put it out of wrong order. You know what? I'll look it up. My bad. Oh, there it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Sometimes God is just quiet. Job, uh, he's crying out. He says this, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer. I stand, and you only look at me. Sometimes 
we don't hear God's voice when we cry out because he's silent. There's this amazing story in John. John 11. It says this. Uh, Jesus is, uh, here, let me just read this part to you. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, right? The village of Mary and her sister Martha. Uh, it was Mary who was, uh, uh, had anointed uh, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him and saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This person that Jesus loves is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. So the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Like, that's just the craziest thing to write down, right? I love him so much. He's super sick. By the way, he does die right? Jesus hears about it. He's like, don't worry about it. He's going to die. It's fine. And I'm going to wait here for two more days. Why? Because he loved him. It's a crazy thing to say. He goes and he raises Lazarus from the death and this sets up a chain of events where he ends up going to the cross and dying and being resurrected so that we can have life. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes God is silent, but just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not working. Just because he hasn't shown up yet in a way that we understand doesn't mean he's not doing something great. Just the story all the way through the Bible, sometimes God is silent. Naomi must have thought, where is God? He is silent. So what do you do when God is silent? If that happens in your life, um, here's what you do. You, you go where he is talking. You, you go where he's talking to somebody. You go be with the people of God. You go sit with the people of God, singing the songs of God in the presence of God. And you sit there and you wait. That's what she does. She gets up and says, you know what? The famine's over. I've heard God's visited my my land. There's nothing holding me here anymore. I'm going back. And she goes back to be the people of God. I cannot overemphasize the value of being around the people of God of God, singing the songs of God when it feels like God is silent. So she gets up and she returns. She's heard that Yahweh's acted uh, to supply food. The famine was over. He has visited. Act one, scene one, Moab to Bethlehem. She rose, daughters, law, returned to Moab, for she heard fields of Moab, the Lord visited people and given them food. Here's what happens. So, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Wait, hold on a second. Major, did I forget a map? Show them the map. Can you show them the map? Poor Major. Oh, that was it. I saw it. That's it. This is what we're talking about, right? So Moab is this fertile plain, right, on the other side of the Dead Sea, right? But you've got to go around it. It's like getting from my house to Ross Bridge. Like, you can see it, but you've got to go, like... so. Yeah, you're in Bethlehem, they go all the way down and around to Moab. So this is where they are, it's this fertile plain, right? So they, she begins, her and her two daughter-in-laws begin the trip back. All right, sorry, Major, thanks. Where was I? Okay. So she set out from the place where they, she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. I got a little emotional. Sorry about that. I'm just kidding. I'm not sorry. So here's the deal. This is, oh, this is so beautiful. So what happens is um, she tells him to go back. Naomi tells him to go back. And then she prays this blessing over them, right? This beautiful blessing. Uh, it says, um, the Lord, uh, may, may the Lord. Now remember, when it's all caps, right? When it's all caps in your Bible, that means that's the, that's the uh, divine name. That's the personal name of God. That's Yahweh, right? They just do this for convention. So she says, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She prays this blessing over them. Go back to the land of Moab. Go back to the land of Chemosh. And while you're there, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. May Yahweh give you rest. Chemosh can't, right? There's this very, very intentional use of the divine name of like, it doesn't matter where you are, it's Yahweh that will deal kindly with you. And so she prays this blessing over them. She wants this for them. And they both object, right? They both say, nope, no way. Not gonna do it. And Naomi presses them even further. Like she reminds them of the situation, right? She's like, look, I can't offer you sons. I can't offer you uh, husbands in Israel are probably gonna be nearly impossible for you because you're outsiders, you're, you're Moabites, uh, not gonna be able to find husbands there. I immigrated here looking for a better life. You immigrating there, no way that's a better life for you. What are you doing? There's no way you should do that. Go back. I'm a widow. I cannot marry. And she even says, Yahweh set himself against me. I don't want this for you. It's bitter for me to think about you having to go through what I'm going to have to go through. You can still have a good life. What faced them in Israel wasn't just like a difficult life, like finding food and making a living. It wasn't just that. It's also just a really, it's a life of an outsider, right? Not just having Moabite wives, but being, well, look, It's a different culture, right? So your family name was kind of a big, was a big deal, right? It keeps mentioning, like they're Ephratites from Bethlehem. Your family name and your family, was, that was a big deal. Um, 
Today, that's like your family accomplishments and your line. Not only did they care for you, but it was who you were. And today, it's almost the exact opposite, right? Like your individual accomplishments are the big deal, right? Your resume is the big deal. Look what I've done. It matters less what your family does. It's just, it's just a different culture. Things have changed. And so she says, look, I, I got nothing. I don't, my, my family line is over. <laughs> I can't have kids. I got nothing. So not only are we going to be destitute, I, there's not even going to be a way for us to have family, to make name for ourselves. We're going to be outsiders and we're going to be nobodies. And she begs them to go back. Orpah, with tears and sadness, returns. I think Orpah sometimes gets a bad, you know, like a bad rap. People are like, Orpah didn't stay. I'm like, well, she just obeyed, right? She just went. I mean, it was a legitimate thing to do. I don't think we should, we should uh, think ill. There's no reason in the text for us to think will, uh, uh, ill of Orpah. So she returns and goes back to the family, uh, and uh, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, look, your sister-in-law's gone back. You need to go back too. And Ruth gets a little firm. <laughs> She's like, mm-mm, stop, stop, don't even, stop urging me. I'm not going to do it. And she pours out this beautiful thing. She refuses to leave Naomi. Not only that, she attaches herself to Naomi in this beautiful act of friendship. I'm going to go where you... And it's not, just, it's not just to Naomi that she's attaching herself. Maybe not even primarily, right? She says, um, look at this. Don't urge me to leave you or to return. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. She's going to take their people, the Israelites. They're, I'm going to become an Israelite. Your God will be my God. And then this, like, where you die, I will die. I mean, Naomi's a lot older, right? She's probably going to die first. And she says, it doesn't matter. Even after you die, I'm saying, wherever you are, this is my life now. I'm not going to just hang out just because it's going rough for you and just help you out and then go back to my family. Where you die, I'm going to die. And then she calls like... Then she calls on a, basically like a, like a, enters into this contract. May the Lord, and she takes the divine name there, right? May Yahweh do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. She takes Yahweh's name on herself. I think this is a conversion story, right? She's now saying Yahweh's my God. I will trust him. Beautiful, 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 beautiful moment. But like it's weird though, right? Like it's odd. Like it doesn't I mean like it doesn't here's my question. Does it make sense? I mean, really? Does it make sense? Why? What is what does Ruth see that's so attractive that she's willing to take on this people and this God? I mean, let's look at what she knows so far, right? Naomi comes into her life. Why? Because God sent a famine. So you've lived through famine. Then your husband died. Then your sons died. And you've said yourself that your God has set his hand against you. Sign me up. What is attractive to her about this situation? Here's what I think it is. I think she sees something in Naomi she's never seen. I think there's something divine going on as well, but I also think that what she sees, what the divine thing going on, is that she sees something in Naomi she's never seen. 
Naomi at this low point in her life when she has nothing before her, she has hopeless, she's just, there's no hope, there's nothing before her. She stops in this moment and at great cost to herself, tries to send them back. She needs them. She's got nobody. And she realizes the situation she's entering into and out of great love, she turns and looks at these people that she needs and says, hey, you know what? It's not good for you to come with me. And she just, in this act of just sacrificial love, sends back these people that she not only loves, but needs because the life ahead of her is going to be rough. So she says, listen, you need to go back. And she just, in this great act of, act of sacrificial love, she asks them to go back. She needs these people in her old age and she sends them back. And then what Ruth does is she completely attaches herself to Naomi. She sees what Naomi does. She sees this love and says, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Even if your God has dealt harshly with you, I want to be a part of a people who believe in a God like that. And so she attaches herself in this beautiful, beautiful way of this beautiful act of friendship to Naomi. In a time in Israel when everybody did what they pleased, when everybody served themselves, thought of themselves first, Ruth shows us an absolute different way to be in the world. Not thinking of herself first, but attaching yourself to somebody to love her well. Against this backdrop of a world where everybody is out for themselves, Naomi and then Ruth in response attaches herself and shows us a different way to be in the world, a different way to be in society, a different way to be in relationship. She shows this stability in this midst of chaos. She is light in the darkness. I would, I would love to have a tenth of her strength. To go, nope, I know life's going to be hard, but I love you. And just to sacrifice and to follow and to see this. And in, in the, look, we live in chaotic times. I don't know if you noticed or not. <laughs> but we live in some pretty chaotic times. Um, how are we supposed to have an impact in the world? In this chaos. I feel like I can't even have a conversation with people anymore. I have to guard every word I say, every phrase I use. I feel like I have to footnote. How am I supposed to live and love and get along in this world, how is the gospel supposed to be attractive? And we tried things, right? I had a buddy of mine who told me, and we were similar, I just love the way he put it. Like we, I, we had similar things when I was growing up, but I love the way he put it. He said, man, we used to sit around when I was in youth group, and we just pray Eminem would come to Jesus. Think of the platform, think of the platform Slim Shady would have, you know? And he's just like thought about like, man, how many people would come to Jesus if God, if Jesus would just get a hold of Slim Shady? And, I just, and we, we, we laugh about it, right? And I'm not saying it's not true. It's good. Think I, you know, we can pray for him, Marshall Mathers. But I think somehow we think that sometimes that when our life is going great, if everything looks good, if our life is shiny and happy, and don't you feel that somewhat that way sometimes when you come to church? Right, got to put on a brave face, make sure everybody know everything's going okay. Uh, I, I don't know that that's what's attractive. I mean, not long term. I think maybe initially it's attractive. But I think long term what's attractive, what really will bring people 
to knowing Jesus, to this kind of stability in a chaotic world is not me having the right words, not you knowing exactly what to say, but it's when you and I sacrificially love other people. When it costs us something to love somebody else. I think that over time as we are in people's lives, that's what becomes attractive. People look around and go, why would you do that? Let me tell you. I think over time, loving people when it's difficult, loving people when it costs you something, that is so beautiful and so attractive in the world that we are living in. You want an apologetic, a way to convince people of the goodness of the God that you worship? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's what I'm talking about. In a time when everybody does whatever they want, without consideration for tribe or family or church, it is a powerful argument for God's goodness to give yourself for others. To commit to a thing. To commit to your spouse, to commit to friends, to commit to life together. It is a powerful, powerful thing to commit to loving people well, especially when they don't deserve it. That's how you go be a light in the darkness. That's how you give people hope. The people around you that you just think, you're like, I don't know what to do. They need Jesus, you know? What do you do? You love people around you sacrificially till it costs you something. Here's what I'm talking about, right? What would it cost you? I don't know if you've ever been in a cycle, maybe in a marriage or a friendship where just like no matter what the other person says, you just get angry. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be like, hey, I love you. Like, I hate you so much, right? Like, whatever it is, the situation where we get in these cycles, we're just, what would it cost you when someone gets angry at you to not get angry back? That's going to cost you, right? I mean, it's it's free for me to fire back harder than you fired at me. That's free. I just pass that out all day long. I, I got endless supply of that. But to absorb the anger, to absorb the hurt, to absorb the pain and love them anyway, what does that cost you? Man, it's at least going to cost you some time in prayer. It's at least going to cost you hurt feelings, right? It's going to cost you something to love that person well. You're going to have to sacrifice to do it. Some of you, some of us need to learn how to say no. What's that going to do? It's going to cost you. Some of us, have, there's people that we need to tell things. You're not, you keep touching the stove. You keep doing it. You keep burning your hands. And we just don't know how to have that hard conversation. And it's going to cost you to just... Figure out in prayer how to say the hard thing to this person because you love them. It's going to cost you and you're afraid and you're going to have to do it anyway. It's going to cost you. It costs to learn to love well. It costs to learn to love. See, the way that love works so much is, um, look, one of the reasons it's so hard to love well, I think, when, is that to truly love somebody, the cost, look, we, here's, let me say it this way. we tend to operate in love based on the love that we feel. Does that make sense? Like how much love I have, if I'm, if I'm here, right? If I'm here, if I'm all out of love for the day, right? Right? Like I've been to like the post office, right? Like I'm all out of love. I had to go to the DMV in the post office today. There's no more love left to give. And that's hard, right? But when I, when I feel full of love, ah, yeah, so that's easy, right? When I feel, because for us, so much of love is value, right? When you say, I don't feel loved, what do you mean? You mean I don't feel valued. I don't feel important, right? So if I don't feel loved, if I don't feel valued, it's hard for me to turn around and, and make you feel loved and make you feel valuable. Does that make sense? 
Like, like, it's so hard. Like, if you're loving me well, it's pretty easy for me to love you well. If you're not loving me well, now it costs me something to love you. So what, what we're looking at in Scripture, what we're looking at here is, instead of looking at other people, the other person in my life, these other relationships, the people around me, instead of looking for them to treat me how, like we want kind of some kind of justice level of love, right? Like if you give me this much love, I'll give you this much love. We want some kind of like even playing field. And that's not how it works. So what, here's, here's the way it works in Scripture. The way it works in Scripture is uh, that instead of looking to each other as our primary source of feeling loved, we look to cross. The cross. We look to Jesus, right? It shouldn't surprise us the power of sacrificial love in the world when the way that God decided to change the world was through sacrificial love. <laughs> how am I gonna, how's God going to remake the world? Sacrificial love. How is he going to use you to remake your family, to remake the world around you? Sacrificial love. And so how do we go about doing this is making sure that we are topped up, full up on love, not necessarily from the people around us, our value not coming from here, but your value coming from here. This is how deeply loved you are. And when we meditate and we're still and we're quiet and we reflect on this, it's much easier for that love to spill out of us into people that aren't loving us the way that we should be loved, maybe the way you deserve to be loved. We're able to go and live sacrificially. No one has ever sacrificed more for someone who deserved it less than when Jesus died for me. That is what we operate out of. This is what Ruth sees in Naomi, and she just throws it right back at her. I want a part of the God who makes you able to love this way. I pray for that kind of strength. Act 1, scene 2. Don't worry, they're short. Act 1, scene 2, verse 19. So the two of them went on the way, came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? They're stunned, right? Been gone for over a decade. She said to them, don't call me, call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara, uh, she didn't plan, plan words. Don't call me pleasant, don't call me beautiful, don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, it means bitter. Oh, isn't that sad? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Plan words there, right? Call me bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. This is an ironic thing to say, right? Because she went away because of famine. She went away hungry, right? What she means is she went away with family and hope, and she's come back with nothing. At least when she was immigrating, there was hope. Call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? That's the end of scene two, back in Bethlehem. Now the epilogue, Ruth 1.22. So Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the county, uh, country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Ends on a little note of hope, right? There was no food before. We end the scene with the hope Hope, there's barley, there's food. Maybe something will happen. Yeah, we'll figure it out next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful story. May we grow in our ability and our capacity to love. May we, may we see how much your love is for us, and that's what we grow out of. That's what we're able to love out of, out of the, the, the fullness that you fill us up with, the life of Jesus flowing into us so that we are full because of what Christ has done of joy 
and full of peace and patience and kindness and love and goodness and mercy and, 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 and self-control. May we be full of these things because of who Jesus is in the life that we have in him. Help us push away distractions to be still and to listen to you. To sit and hear how loved we are. How loved we are. How undeserving I am. And we confess and turn to you. You were faithful and just to forgive. May that love that we experience in you spill out of us and flow in the lives of those around us. Give us that strength and that courage. Give us the strength and courage to receive love when we don't deserve it from those around us. May we be a church that does this habitually. Life and love spilling out of us. Constant forgiveness, constant quickness to forgive, slow to anger. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.